0: Well, good morning and greetings to all. Um, It's very good to be here. And I don't just say that as an opening statement, as remarks, as something that's nice and fluffy. I say that because it is good to be here. Why? First and foremost, we have the Word of God, which is truth in front of us. Secondly, even as Brother Dan mentioned in the prayer that we are able to dwell together in unity, we know that Jesus even said that no one is good but God. So it is in fact really good to be here. I didn't expect this morning as I was sitting here to be somewhat emotional for us, or for me at least. Our family, or specifically myself, I haven't been to the Kitchener Waterloo region. I, I think it's since December of last year, just due to what's going on. And when I looked back at that, even speaking with my in-laws, Katrina and I have been married for almost uh, nine years. And if you include our engagement time, it's almost been a decade that I haven't been here in approximately six or seven months. That's a, that's a long time. It's a third of my life. So it's somewhat emotional. Secondly, singing collectively as a group with brothers and sisters and those who are seeking the face of God. I haven't sang a hymn since March, collectively together. I wasn't expecting it to affect me, but it did. I think it's a beautiful thing, and how amazing is it, and how good is it to be with brothers and sisters, fellowshipping and communing together. I was talking to Brother Dan on the phone, and he mentioned, and even watching some of the live stream feeds um, that you are able to uh, to put out online, noticing the 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 church is how it's meant to be. There's young people, there's old people, there's children, there's grandparents, there's great-grandparents, cousins, nephews, families, and friends. That's what the church is. There's generations, and we can see it. And although it might be a little more difficult for the younger ones to experience or to understand the message that's being brought out, we do know and can trust in the Lord and by His Spirit that He provides The message for all ages. I'd like to start, for those who are in Sunday school, for the younger children, I want you to think about something. I'm going to share with you a little story. And the story is true, it involves actually my grandfather, and I was thinking about it last night. We would often go to his house, my grandparents' place, and they lived out in the country. My grandfather loved his fruit trees. He had peaches, he had cherries, apricots, plums, which I wasn't really a big fan of. But he also had a vineyard. It wasn't a big vineyard. And the reason for that is because it took a lot of work. But there was a vineyard there. And I remember quite vividly going into that small little vineyard that he had, only a couple rows, about maybe 50 feet long. And I remember at the time, almost close to harvest, my two brothers and I would go and we'd take some of the grapes. And we called him Upko. We said, Upko, I said, these grapes are, they taste like grape juice. I said, they're amazing. And he looked at me and he said, Sammy, he said, it takes a lot of work to get good grapes. He says, it takes a lot of work. There's a lot of toiling. They don't just come. They had nets on them. He says, the birds would come in and attack. There would be a lot of hoeing or taking care of the garden. There'd be watering. There'd be watching out for other raccoons or skunks that would come in and take the ones closer to the bottom. He said, it's a lot of work. And so, for you children, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about, what does a good fruit tree look like? Or what does a vineyard look like that's really nice and lush, has really green leaves and has really big grapes? Do you think that takes a lot of work? And, do we enjoy that fruit? Is that something good that we like to take and we like to to eat or consume? And specifically for grapes... I don't know how many of you like grape juice. I do. I think it's very, very good. So as we go through this sermon and as we read the Word of God, this Bible, I want you to think about that. What does it take for a vineyard to be a fruitful vineyard or for a tree to be a good, fruitful tree? I'd like for all of us to turn to Matthew Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. Jesus is giving the second parable regarding a vineyard in verse 33. Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Matthew 21. Jesus is speaking. Here... Another parable, the second of the vineyard. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen, or in other words, tiller of the ground, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? They, the Pharisees, said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render, or to pay off to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes." Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. May the Lord bless the reading of the word. To give a little bit of a context here, if we flick... Back in the Scriptures, we know even in Matthew at the beginning of 21, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on that feast week, that Passover feast week, of that we all know very well of what happened. He comes in riding on a donkey. We know the Scriptures are fulfilled. And then in Matthew, and it also mentions this in the Gospel of Mark, it mentions that he goes away into Bethphagia, and he comes back into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and he, he curses that fig tree, the only, the only destruction miracle that Jesus gave or that he did. And he said, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. The fig tree was dead. It was dried up. It was gone. And we know that the fig tree, if we look in the Old Testament, was, was a spiritual barometer almost of the children of Israel and how spiritual they were. And obviously when Jesus came and he, he cursed the fig tree, That barometer sure wasn't showing the greatest sign or the greatest test. So he goes on and then he goes into the uh, temple and he flips the tables and the money changers. And he says, this is the house of the Lord. And it's not going to be used as a den of thieves. Then he goes on to the first parable that was given in this time period, specifically at the temple. And in verse 28, he starts speaking about a vineyard. And he has this comparison. But when we speak about parables, and we talk about parables quite often, we know Jesus gave parables. But there's something different about Jesus' parables that he gave. Many noble, wise men in the world have given parables in the past. Parables are this, almost like this juxtaposition, this contrast, or the fact of seeing two opposing views together. So one is able to see the difference. But specifically with Jesus, of which no other man can do of the kingdom of God, is he is giving parables or juxtapositions about the kingdom of God. Many Christians will even say about a parable, about giving a contrast. We have to be very careful about that when speaking about Jesus who is the word that became flesh he's given the laws and the precepts of god and comparing it for those who see to understand in fact if we even go back to matthew chapter 13 when he gives the parable of the seeds uh, and the soil and he specifically speaks to the disciples came and he says well he they ask well why are you giving parables anyways what's the purpose of a parable He says, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. He's saying, because they seeing not and hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. Parables are given so that believer, brother and sister, you and me can understand this kingdom of which he has brought. The kingdom of God that Jesus has brought to this earth. And that's what the parable is showing us. And it's helping us understand, what does that kingdom mean? And so Jesus uses, in Matthew 21, two examples of the vineyard. And the first example he gives of the two sons. And he says, one of the sons, he speaks about working in the vineyard. And the one son, it mentions, he says, please go in the vineyard and work. He says, I'm not going to go. But then afterward, he repents and comes back and works in the vineyard. And the second son said, I will go, and never actually went and never fulfilled the task at hand. And so he asked the Pharisees, and he says, which one did the will of his father? And they obviously said, well, the first one, because he repented and came back. And Jesus says something profound to the Pharisees. He says, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you do. Radical. Radical teaching. And why? Because of their humility and repentance. And they were drawing to the cords of love from God through Jesus. And so... He gives this example, and he gives this analogy, or this symbolism. And for both of these parables about the vineyard, he compares the vineyard to none other than the kingdom of God. What do we know about the kingdom of God? If we look in the scripture, Jesus came... And even in Mark chapter 1, what did he do? He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? His righteousness. The kingdom of God. God's righteousness. And all of these things of uh, the fulfillment of the law in, in, in Matthew 5, se- uh, 6 and 7 will be given unto you. Seek the kingdom of God. We know this very well, John chapter 3. Unless we are born again of water and of spirit, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus even shared in Matthew chapter 12, but if I cast out devils, he says then the kingdom of God has been given or brought unto you. And that's exactly what he did. He's brought the kingdom. He's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. He's brought the kingdom. And he uses this example of the vineyard and compares it to the kingdom of God. So in verse 33, he speaks about the second parable regarding the vineyard, regarding the kingdom of God. And remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, the ones who knew the law inside and outside, memorized it. There was a certain householder. So now he starts giving this example of the vineyard. He's he's speaking about this this parable, specifically to those who can hear and see. But he's speaking to them. And he talks about this parable of the vineyard. Now, this isn't the first time that these Jewish people or the children of Israel is hearing about a vineyard. And we know this quite evidently found in Scripture, even if we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 9. In verse 20, it says, And Noah, the first time a vineyard is even mentioned in Scripture, and Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And we know what took place with his vineyard. He took the fruit of the vine, made it into wine, and got drunk. The first time a vineyard is mentioned, it even speaks about drunkenness because of the sin and the depravity that is in the world. But but this is something that they know of very, very well. In fact, even in Exodus chapter 22, when Moses went up to the mount at Sinai and the Lord, Jehovah God was giving the law to Moses, he even spoke about vineyards. In Exodus 22 verse 5, he said, "If a man shall cause a field or a vineyard to be eaten, meaning to be consumed or to be burned up, to be taken away, and shall put his in uh, and shall put in his beast and shall feed in another man's field, or in other words, vineyard, of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard shall he make restitution. The law of restitution, and we can see this continuously throughout the law that God gave Moses specifically. It's this law of restoration. You needed to restore like for like. And so even if a vineyard was consumed, you had to restore that vineyard for the purpose of what that vineyard was for. Why do I read that? The children of Israel, the Hebrew people, God's firstborn son, even like Moses spoke to Pharaoh about about, uh, Israel being God's firstborn son. They knew about vineyards. If we continue and we look now at the prophets, and if we go to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, it's a poem that Isaiah was given because from the conviction of Jehovah God. And what was this poem or song about? It was specifically about a vineyard. And I'd like to read the first few verses to understand even what Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about. This is what Isaiah says. Now I will sing to my well-beloved. Who's the well-beloved? Israel. They are his well-beloved, his firstborn son, not his only begotten son. A song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it. And he gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And guess what? It brought forth wild grapes. Stinking, worthless grapes. In other words, poison berries. It wasn't good for anything. You couldn't use it. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could I have done more? What could I have done more for my people? I gave them everything. I showed them my love and my compassion and my long-suffering and my mercy. And they still brought forth wild grapes. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 5 about this example of the children of Israel with the vineyard. But Jesus is speaking about that poem. He's speaking about the same analogy that was given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5. He's speaking about the children of Israel, the Pharisees, who were right in front of him. Because they didn't get it. He cursed the fig tree and they withered and died. He threw the money changers and the tables in the temple. Because it was a den or a house of thieves. And it wasn't used for the honor and glory of the Lord. So what do all these things represent? In verse 33, he says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder. Now, this householder means the head of a family. In other words, it could also mean the master of a house, none other than Almighty God. He plants a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged, it, digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen. Built a hedge. Just like in Isaiah. And I want us to think about the Pharisees. To think about the law-abiders that didn't get the essence of what the law was even for. To show God's love and His compassion to His people so that if they followed according to the law, they would understand who He was and is and always will be. And they didn't get it. So here it says that, and hedged it round about. He put a hedge around the vineyard. Let's consider the children of Israel. When we think of a hedge, when we think of a fence in Isaiah 5, that there was a fence around this vineyard, what do we think about? Children, if you were to think about a hedge or a fence that was around a vineyard or a garden, what would you think? What's it there for? Probably there so that animals don't get into the, into the, into the fruit. Other people or thieves wouldn't come in and wouldn't steal any of the fruit that was there. Or rabbits, if it was a pepper plant, wouldn't eat the pepper plants? It's there for protection. And what do we see God doing, brothers and sisters, to the children of Israel? He continuously puts a hedge around them. A hedge of protection. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verses 29 to 31, it speaks, and he says, But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou wilt seek him with thy whole heart and with all thy soul. And he says in 31, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee. And we know even back in Exodus, Jehovah God shared, and he says, I, I carried you out as, as an eagle on eagle's wings. I'm protecting you from Pharaoh. I'm taking you out of the land of slavery so that you can experience a land of milk and honey. I'm putting a hedge around you. I'm protecting you. And you continually continually disobey me. And you follow after your own adulterous ways. But I'm going to continue to be long-suffering and continue to show you my love, the hedge of protection. If we think about the walls of the water going up on both sides with Moses and the children of Israel going through the Reed Sea, the hedge of protection. We think even when we see their their adulterous ways and and what they did, both with Israel, with the Assyrians, and, and with Judah, with the Babylonians, they weren't in exile forever. The sovereignty of God played out with kingdoms, and he said it's only going to happen for Judah for 70 years. The hedge of protection is around God's people. And they missed it. They didn't get it the hedge of protection. Secondly, Jesus mentions a wine press. Now, a wine press is very interesting how they used to work. In fact, they still find them, whether it be in Egypt or Jerusalem or Syria or wherever it may be. And apparently they took these big stones and they started grinding out troughs in these stones to create these somewhat gaths and they had most of the time they had two of them or two different levels and the first level was used as a, as a stomping ground they would throw their grapes into this trough or into this wine press gaff and they would stomp on the grapes naturally when you stomp on grapes the juices would flow and they would go into the bottom trough or reservoir and the juices would be collected the wine press and and and, and this was a very It was a joyful thing. If, if we even look in scripture, um, if we go to Jeremiah chapter 25, he gives us, the Lord gives us some more words about what, what this wine press was all about. This happened during the harvest time. In the harvest time, whether September, October, near the ending of the year, it was a joyful experience. When they would be trotting on these grapes, it was a wonderful thing. And why was it a wonderful thing? Because they're harvesting their fruit. They're experiencing this, this wonderful harvest and they're taking and crafting the product and making it into something they can consume and they can enjoy. And that being the grape juice or the wine that was given. And so in Jeremiah... Jeremiah even speaks about the cup of, of God's wrath after the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity um, to his people. In verse 30, he says, Therefore prophesy thou against them, all those who, who oppose him and the Babylonians and, and the others. And he says, And say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. It was a wonderful, joyful experience. It was a joyful experience. Isaiah chapter 16 speaks about the shouting and the joyful time of harvest that would take place. But yet at the same time, we see the flip side of this. And even we read in Revelation, I believe it's 14 and 19, we can read about this, the winepress of the wrath of God. And how often, brother and sister, when we consider the children of Israel, how often did they experience this pressing? Did they experience the Lord's word of truth that were that was being provided to them and, and almost um, pressing them or sanctifying them to get the sin out of the camp? And for those who were followers of Yahweh God, it was a beautiful thing because they're getting the sin out of the camp. But for those who oppose the views of the Lord and His law, that was a wicked, wrathful thing because it hurt. It was disgusting. It wasn't good. The wine press, the trotting of the grapes, whether they be good grapes or they would be spoiled, rotten grapes. This was experienced by them. How many times did they see this? How many times did they feel this? Even when they took over different camps and keeping loot, we know of accounts even with Moses and taking the people and over 3,000 people killed because they disobeyed the word of the Lord. Touching the Ark of the Covenant in an improper way, killed. They didn't follow the word of the law. They experienced the wine press. In fact, Isaiah in verse 63, or sorry, chapter 63, He says, and speaks of himself, I that speak in righteousness, in verse 1, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have tread in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Nobody could stomp and tread the winepress other than the Lord God himself. And why? He shares this. Because, uh, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all their raiment. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. No one else was righteousness. There was none other that was able to fulfill the law. None other than who we know of, Jesus himself being the branch or the rod of Jesse that's found in Isaiah chapter 11. So we can see this hedge that the Lord put around this vineyard for protection. We can see this wine press that was put in there for a pressing and a squeezing so that the people would understand their wrongdoing and turn back to the Lord and to be used for his purpose of wine, of good wine and built a tower. So here Jesus says, after he hedged about it, he put the wine press in it, he built a tower. And what are these Pharisees thinking? What are these law-abiders thinking about this tower? If we look in the times of old of vineyards, in fact, I think even here in the Dune area, there is a high tower, a watchtower, that you can go and walk up, if I remember correctly. I believe we did that trail once. And it's a wonderful high tower. But what was a high tower used for in a vineyard? Is this a common occurrence back then? Yes, it was. And the, vine- the, the, the high tower was used for a specific purpose. During the time of harvest, the family of whom the vineyard was owned by would run up into this high tower. They would run up into this high tower to watch and to see who was coming. Those thieves that were far off that were about to come in and invade and take over the fruit. They'd be able to watch. They also used it for a place of protection. They used it, as the family would, as a place of rest. For the harvest season is quite busy, a lot of work going on. And they would be close by the vineyard. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the law abiders. He's saying, don't you get it? Don't you understand? The Lord, his name is a high tower. If you seek after him and follow after him and his commandments, he will bless you. And you will be able to see who is coming, the enemy. And you will protect the vineyard as you are a husbandman, as as you are a, a worker, a tiller of the ground. You are going to see who's coming only in the Lord. In Psalm, Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. He is our high tower. And he was the high tower to the Pharisees and the children of Israel. And they missed it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. He put a hedge around them. He built a wine press. He built a tower. And then he gave it to the husbandmen. The workers in the vineyard. Now, some would say that the husbandmen... Are specifically from one family, and that the workers that would come in would be a different, I guess, group of of individuals. And this could represent the priesthood of the children of Israel. We know that they were called to a certain calling. We know that they were brought in, and that they were mediators between God and man to the people, so that the people would understand what God um, is 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 is. Uh, not feeling, but is, is, um, is experiencing with his people, whether they are following the word of the Lord or not, could be. It could be all the children of Israel who were called to work in his vineyard. But the point of it is that if you follow through with verses 34 through 36, there were several individuals or servants that would come into this vineyard to reap or to gather the harvest. But what do we see about the husbandmen, the tillers of the ground? There was this protection or, or almost this pride. They're not coming in. We're not going to share anything with them. And in fact, Jesus says, beat one and killed another and stoned another. And if we consider the children of Israel, if we consider the Old Testament scriptures, what do we know about the prophets that came in and continually prophesied to the children of Israel and they didn't get it? About the good kings taking away the high places? About why they even needed kings in the first place? About their complaining in the, in the wandering in the wilderness and the disobeying of the commandments that they were just given days before? In Second Chronicles, and there's many examples. I, I chose the one in Second Chronicles chapter 24. And this was with King Joash of Judah. And he says the following in verse 18. And they left the house of the Lord. God, uh, speaking of the children of Israel. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their trespasses. Yet he, the Father, he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you." In verse 21, And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king and the court of the house of the Lord. Time and time again, we see the killing of the prophets of old. We see almost the ashes that was found at one of the seals in Revelations, the ashes under the altar of the souls that continually followed after God and were used as a sacrifice for the Lord. I believe it was uh, was Jeremiah was was taken away. Um, Isaiah was killed, even out in, in, I believe, in Babylon. There's so many examples of the prophets of old who were killed by their own people. It wasn't the enemy, it was their own people. And just like Jesus is sharing to the Pharisees, you didn't even understand your own people. You didn't get it. How many times did they preach repentance and to seek after the Lord and you didn't get it? John, John the Baptist, the Pharisees still didn't understand. Repentance to bring forth fruits meet for repentance? Repentance of what? Yet the publicans and the sinners understood, and theirs was the kingdom of God. And lastly, the Lord God brings his son. The son that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. How often did he share, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest in your souls. And they didn't get it. And what's that yoke? That pair of balances of the black horse? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. For in these two commandments is the entirety of the law fulfilled. The whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What's the point of all of this? Why are we talking about a vineyard for the children of Israel? Because in verse 41... It says he will miserably destroy, and these are the Pharisees that are saying this, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. And he's gonna give the vineyard to other husbandmen. Brother and sister, that's where we come in. The Gentile people. We come in and we are now experiencing this vineyard, the kingdom of God. We're experiencing this. So the question, what's the hedge look like? What's the wine press look like? What's the high tower look like? The enemy roars. We know that apostle Peter says he seeks whom he may devour. And we are reminded that the spirit of God is with his people. Who can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, strife, envy, and the list goes on from Apostle Paul. Nothing, nothing, no thing can separate us from the love of God if we continue to follow after His Word. The hedge of protection is there. But what am I doing? What am I doing in the vineyard? Am I being a tiller of the ground? Am I pruning the branches? Are there those that are dried up with leaves? Maybe the dried up branches of pride? Maybe the weeds that come in or the dried up branches of lusting after the flesh? Prune it. It's gotta come off. In fact, Jesus loves us so much that he begs of us that they would come off. What about the love of the brotherhood? Opinions and emotions are quite high right now, especially with the current events and affairs that are happening. What's the love of the brotherhood look like? We have to go back and think of the children of Israel, of the example that was given with this parable. When we see that in Isaiah 5, the Lord said, I'm going to lift up the hedge and it's going to be gone. If the fence is gone, what, how how are the fruit going to survive? The enemy is going to come in. How often have we sought the Lord as our high tower? Oh, he's our rock and our fortress. He's our deliverer. Are we running up that high tower, step after step, excited, knowing that whatever is on our way, the Lord is going to protect us? And, brother and sister, this isn't physical. This isn't the physical world of all that's happening. It is the spiritual. The kingdom of God, Apostle Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 4, is not in word, but in power. We know that God is a spirit. This is a spiritual battle. What's the spiritual hedge? What is the spiritual winepress? What is the spiritual tower? We need to run to that tower. And we need to seek his face. It goes on, for the sake of time, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, a wonderful, beautiful song that fulfills The prophetical work of Jesus himself, being that rod of Jesse, the chief cornerstone. And to put the icing on the cake, as the saying goes, the Pharisees rejected the chief cornerstone. They rejected him. And the word says, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, shall be humbled, and shall see but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him. In other words, to winnow or to take the chaff away to him, uh, sorry, will grind him to powder. It's my prayer that we consider the times. We know, Apostle Paul said very clearly, that the times of the Gentiles is going to be fulfilled whenever that might be. Some would say it's a lot sooner rather than later. I tend to agree. But the times of the Gentiles is going to be fulfilled. And God's grace and mercy is going to be shown once again to his firstborn people, the Jewish nation. For those of you that do research and study and see what's happening out east, even with the annexation efforts and everything else with the Jewish people that are coming back to seeking Messiah, Yeshua, the Deliverer, it's happening. It's happening more than ever. They're trying to stop it. In fact, they just stopped a uh, a show online of, uh, in Hebrew, the gospel efforts that were given in Hebrew to the Jewish people. So there's definitely opposition, but it's happening. Things are happening. Romans 11 says the following, and I'll read this in closing, in verses 21 and 22. For if God spared not the natural branches who were of this olive tree, Take heed, be very careful, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shall be cut off. Sunday school children, I shared with you a story about when I went to see my grandfather and I asked him about his vineyard that he had, very, very small, and he said it took a lot of effort. The Christian life is no easy, easy walk. We are called to follow the commandments of Jesus. He's our master, and he's our healer, right? My grandfather shared with me something. He called me on the day of my announcement for my baptism. And he told me, I apologize, I'm sorry. He told me, Sammy, the Christian walk is not an easy walk. Are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes, Abko. I'm sure I want to do it. Brother and sister, what's the hedge look like? What's the wine press look like? And are we running to our strong tower? Amen.